0: So this morning, if you would um, turn in your Bibles to the gospel, according to John in chapter six, this morning, we're going to consider verse one through verse 21. This is a probably very familiar passage to most of us, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. I will tell you, it won't be a a message like one I heard about this passage being about sharing. I, I will tell you that the passage is not about sharing. So we're going to begin uh, this, um, our study this morning. We're going to begin in prayer, and then we will read the passage and then make some observations and applications as we go. Let us uh, turn our hearts to pray. Father God, we do come to your scripture this morning. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to illuminate this passage to us by grace. We ask God, the Holy Spirit, to give us grace to overcome our human limitations so we can see the spiritual truth in your word. Give us grace, Lord, to see Jesus as our overcoming Savior. And Father God, please help us to walk in the truth that you will reveal to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew Simon uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many?" Jesus said, "Have the people sit down." Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. The great problem in our society and in our churches today is, if I could sum it up in one word: self." The great problem in society and the great problem in, in churches today, is self. Self Self-determined, self-absorbed, self-defined individualism right now is the societal answer to all of our woes, isn't it? To have a self-defined, self-determined, self-absorbed way of looking at the world is the way in which they tell you that your woes in this world will be solved. But this philosophy has crept into the church today. As we looked a few weeks ago, And I said, we have an eye problem. I am the captain of my own ship, we often say. I have an unconquerable soul. The church is stymied by this because instead of we, the church is composed of a bunch of eyes working separately for self-fulfillment instead of working together to fulfill the mission of kingdom building. We often work so much for ourselves and what is, makes us comfortable, uh, what we might want to hear and think and feel and do, what is according to our will, I guess, that we, we lose the picture of this church gathering every Lord's Day is a we thing and not a me thing. But society, of course, tells us that it's me, that it's it's I, that I should be concerned with I. Well, Chuck Swindoll writes this, If you and I have souls that are unconquerable, the sky is the limit. If we are really our own master and captain, then watch out, world. What seems so right is, in fact, the most dangerous heresy in the world. He says, what is it? The emphasis becomes on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. Most people see themselves as masters of their own fate, captains of their own souls. It is an age-old philosophy, deeply ingrained in the human heart. And why wouldn't it be? Because it supports humanity's all-time favorite subject, self. Why would that not be the case? That is our all-time favorite subject, isn't it? As, as I said last week, when you have children, you understand that their all time favorite subject is them. That they, they are the all, that's the all time center of the universe, right? And when you see your kids and you're trying to work that selfishness out of them as they grow up, right? But it's not something you have to teach them, right? They're just born with that sense of self. Today's passage from John chapter 6, this is an illustration we'll see that refutes the notion that God will never give you more than you can handle, as we've talked about a few weeks ago. In fact, this passage illustrates clearly that humanity is limited and not independent as we would suppose. That self is clearly not enough. In fact, this passage will show that humanity is limited in its resources and limited by its nature as a created Being. So let us now dive more closely into the text and we will look again at the first uh, four verses together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here we're kind of setting the scene for what is going on. And Jesus has just given a defense uh, for his authority to accomplish accomplish God's work, even on the Sabbath, by virtue of his union with the Father. He healed a man by doing the work of God in his own authority and according to his own will and his own judgment that are the same as the Father's. Jesus is this, a distinct person of God, and yet the triune God is never divided. So after this, a crowd has gathered on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples are actually going to uh, away way uh, to take a break, to take a rest. And this, as we think about mountains, when it says it goes to a mountain, this is not necessarily a mountain, but it is an elevated place. It is likely that this place that they're describing there is the modern-day Golan Heights uh, there. Um, The the crowd here, though, they're interested in seeing Jesus perform miraculous healings. And as we see, this is the only event that is recorded in all four Gospels. And Mark's Gospel will help us a little bit here fill this out in chapter 6. Uh, verses 33 through 35, it fills in some details that help us this morning. You see, because Mark records that Jesus intends for the disciples to break away to a desolate place to rest a while. John's gospel doesn't tell us their purpose in going here to the other side of the uh, water, but indeed that was uh, Mark's account says that Jesus said, let's go and take uh, ourselves and go to a desolate place and let us rest a while. So that kind of fills in some details. And the crowd, it also says in that in that chapter, the crowd had been running great distances from all around the towns and all the surrounding towns, and it took great effort for them to get there, and they strove so hard to get there that they wanted to get there before he got there. So they were racing ahead to try to get there before Jesus got there. Right, so this is this crowd that is coming in, and the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is as uh, I was looking at this passage this morning, I was like, or this week, I was like, So, um, what would be the point in Jesus wanting to ask a question? He's about to ask, Where can we get food for these people? Why would that be the natural thought? Well, it's because Jesus. Uh, knew their distance that they had come how far they had traveled how hard they had worked to get there and he had compassion on him so though jesus has come here uh, to this place to rest i want to remember from john 5:17 that jesus said my father is working until now and i am working so although jesus has come with his disciples to take a rest and here's this crowd of people the father through Jesus Christ, continues to work here. The Father and the Son, you see, they never take a break from compassion. They never take a break from mission. As I said last week, God does not need rest, but we do. The work of God in Christ Jesus continues here in our text. The compassion of the Lord does not rest. I was thinking about some things and about people I know and and struggles that they've had and struggles that I've had, Uh, And just want to pose this question to you this morning. Have you had times in your life where you've had one tragedy and just as you seem to get through it, another one follows? One tragedy begets another one? Have you ever felt that the circumstances that have been brought on by your own errors and by your own sins sometimes can seem just way too much to bear? I can't bear another consequence of my mistake. I just don't know how much further... I can go on. Have you felt as though the Lord then is sort of withholding from you compassion and mercy in those really hard times? It just doesn't get better. You keep thinking tomorrow's got to be better. And then more tragedy comes. And you think, oh, my goodness, is the Lord withholding his compassion? Is he withholding his mercy on me? I know the Lord to be compassionate and merciful, but yet I don't, I'm not experiencing that. Is he, is he somehow withholding it on me? Well, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, seeing and experiencing the affliction of God's people and the wrath of God upon them as a consequence of their own sin, writes in Lamentations 3 verses 18 through 23. And I'm going to read this to you from the King James version as it is more clearly stated in that, in that uh, version. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remember mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So if you're in a tough season, my brothers and sisters, his faithfulness is not like yours. His faithfulness to you is not like your failing faithfulness towards him. He remains faithful according to his own nature. You will not ever be fully consumed by your struggles. The Lord's word says that his compassions fail not. And if that be true in troubled times, when your back is against the wall... Check to see this, I think. When your back's against the wall, struggles have come, consequences seem to be added and added, and there seems to be no relief, and grace seems to be far away, and mercy and compassion seem to be far away. It might take a moment for us to remember and to repent. Have I really been repentant? And then we remember this, that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. That it is his mercy renewed to us every morning. I love this passage because of the fact that we can sometimes get mired in sin sometimes, right? And just feel horrible and wretched and that, you know, there's no way that I could be deserving of God's grace, grace to me again, his compassion once again. But this passage is clear that yesterday is gone. When you wake up in the morning, His mercies are brand new in Christ Jesus. You can appropriate that. It is brand new in Christ Jesus. I think that is another reason why you should take the Lord's table seriously. Because it reminds us that although I be wretched, yes, broken, His body was broken for me. But the, the blood of the new covenant is renewed that is a new covenant, it is forever, it is a lasting covenant. And when you wake up in the morning from your wretched day before, you say, oh, Lord, thank God that your mercies are new once again, that I am forgiven and that I walk in newness in this forever covenant shed by Jesus' blood, no work of my own, just mercy and grace and forgiveness. Nothing I can do has has afforded me this great Salvation, but your mercy, Lord, and your mercy alone. See, today is a new day, isn't it? To walk in the faithfulness of God. So this morning, if you're feeling just overwhelmed by maybe <laughs> sinful thoughts, sinful nature, sinful activities, whatever, you've been faithless. Because we've all been faithless at times, haven't we? But notice that today is a brand new day to walk in the faithfulness of God and remind your heart and yourself that his compassions fail not. His mercy never fails us. Let us look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these many people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So here, Jesus lifts up his eyes and guess what? He has compassion. He has, he has compassion on those who have been looking to him, those who have been traveling to get to him, those who have been running great distances, even though they come with a wrong-hearted uh, reason to be in his presence. They come just to see the miraculous work of healing. They're not coming because they want to put their faith and their trust in him. But even though they've come to him for wrong reasons and they've come with great effort, he has compassion upon them. And he thinks this as he looks on the crowd and all that they've done and how long the day has been. He says, these people are going to need some food. So Jesus poses a question to Philip for which Jesus knows this, that the only possible answer To answer this query, where can we get enough food for these people, is God's provision of grace. God's provision of grace alone will do what this situation calls for. Philip here is face to face with the impossible. Philip faces the fact that eight months' worth of wages... Could not supply enough bread to even give them but just a simple taste. Andrew says, There's but one person who brought food and he only brought five loaves and, and, and two fish. We cannot produce enough food and what resources we do have. This is all we have and it will not even put a dent in feeding these people. They would say to him, to Jesus, Jesus, this is impossible. This is an impossible Situation. Now, this is going to age me, and I I I love uh, Rich Mullins' music. So, some of you will not know who that is, but um, Rich Mullins wrote a song long ago uh, called "King of Glory," and in this song, he writes, "Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need." It's a heavy lyric when you think about that. We don't really like to readily admit our dependence upon grace until we face our human limitations, do we? We often don't recognize that we are in need of God's grace until we're really pushed up against our human limitations. When our human limitations come right in front of us, that in my humanity, this is impossible. Until we face the impossible, Like that song says, surrender don't come naturally. And here in verse six, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus tests the disciples by proposing something that would push the limits of their human ability. He here is pushing the limits of their human ability, isn't he? He says, here, where are we going to get enough food to feed these people, right? He's proposing this and he wants them to get, this is humanly impossible. You've reached your human limits. What is needed now is grace. What is needed now in this moment is grace. If we're gonna feed these people, you're gonna need a gracious act of God that will overcome your human limitations, so I want to ask us to understand this and to think about this this morning because I think often we get the idea of grace wrong. How do you understand grace? Is grace something you tap into and then you only get it if you tap into it and you receive it by faith? Does God, God give grace only to those who would cooperate with him? Grace has often been defined as undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor from God. Grace is that which is necessary given our human limitations, isn't it? Grace is really that which is necessary given our own human limitations. Without it, friends, you and I are completely undone. We are completely limited. The contribution of the disciples in this scenario is what? Null. It's zero. There is no contribution to the feeding of these five thousands by by any disciple. Even the, the, the five loaves and the two fish, that's not really the provision that's going on here, right? Eight months salary could not supply enough food to satisfy the hunger of all this multitude. Without grace, this is impossible. This would have to be a work of God alone. This was beyond human limitations, human resources, human ingenuity would not overcome this task. A gracious act of God was necessary. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19? I want to look at verses 24 through 26. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible." In this passage, Jesus teaches that no matter how abundant human resources are, when it comes to salvation, humanity comes to the equation empty-handed. There's not enough. With man, salvation is impossible. What can you, O oh man, contribute to your salvation? When it comes to salvation, all that you possess and all that you desire to contribute by way of righteousness Isaiah tells us, is but filthy rags. Humans are limited in all things necessary for salvation. The only thing that humans have in abundance, what do you guess I'm going to say? The only thing that humans have in abundance is sin. That is all that we have in abundance. There's a never-ending flow. There's a supply. It just doesn't end. We have a never-ending flow of supp- a supply of sin. I have had uh, dear friends leave our congregation because I made this statement to them that the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And I've had folks say that's too harsh. I said, it's not too harsh, it's too true. It is not too harsh. It is the truth of what the Scriptures say. What then do you contribute to your salvation, right? What do you contribute? The sin that made it necessary. And then we understand this, that salvation is all of grace. It is not a synergistic work. That is, that God is not uh, partnering with you, right? He's not come and said, you know, if, if you'd like, if you, if you're willing, if you, if, if you so desire, I, I have salvation for you. And, and, and the way that you can get it is if, is if you do your part and I do my part and we'll meet in the middle and then you're going to have great faith. That's not the way it works. It is not a synergistic work where you provide the faith first and then God provides the grace. It's not like that. It is all grace. It is all grace from the very beginning to the very end. See, and surrender is, as Rich Mullen said, does not come naturally to me. Surrender itself is all of grace. It is a gracious act of God that surrenders the human heart to his will. Faith, my friends, comes by grace. Grace brings you face to face with the impossibility according to your own human terms concerning your position, doesn't it? Grace brings you face to face with your human limitations. You are limited in your humanity. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Rome in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. And this is God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, it's all dependent upon God's grace. Now, some people say that this is sort of harsh and this is sort of stiff thinking, but here's the thing. And that, and that then those who believe in this way are somehow unloving oh my goodness you've got to be kidding me that the, the person who understands who they are in relationship to who God is as a person who is filled with love they understand just how much love it took to save their sorry soul right they understand that those are people who are filled with the love of God and just amazed and enthralled with worship aren't they all glory has to go to God if God does all the work, right? All glory has to go to God if it is a gracious act of God from beginning to end. If there's, if there's nothing that depends on human will or exertion, and the reason why it doesn't depend on human will or exertion is because you and I don't have the supply of what it needs to work ourselves there. It's not in you. Like I said, what we've got in abundance is sin. We don't have abundance of faith. We don't have an overflow of faith just naturally in ourselves. That has to be imparted to us by grace, right? That has to be given to us. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in chapter two, he writes that humanity, and he's speaking generally, but he's talking to their, to the church specifically, but, but speaking humanity overall is dead in their trespasses and sins. Now you see, if I think that I can contribute. Dead people give nothing, do they? What can a dead person contribute? They can contribute nothing. It's all of grace. You see, dead people, their resources have dried up, haven't they? They've exhausted their resources. Have you faced the reality of your impossible situation? That's the question I oppose to everyone. And that's the question we should pose when we're sharing with our our neighbors and our friends who don't know Christ. Have you faced the impossibility of your situation? Do you really understand how impossible it is for you to be saved in your own strength? Do you realize who you are and who He is? Do you realize what is needed here, friends? What is needed is the compassion and grace and the mercy of God. And here the disciples are confronted with what is humanly impossible. So now we're going to change gears. They've seen what is impossible. And now we're going to see the limitless provision of God in Christ Jesus. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them uh, to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, "Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing uh, fragments that nothing may be lost." So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So, what is impossible here in human terms, Jesus makes possible in endless supply. It's an endless supply. The work of God never rests. The supply of God is never depleted. The provision of the Father and Jesus Christ sustains all the crowd. And think about this. There were leftovers. It sustained all the crowd. I equate this to grace. I equate the bread to grace. Think about this. There's grace left over. There's enough grace to supply everyone who would turn and believe. And if you come late to the show, and if you've come late to, to salvation, guess what? There's a leftover bag, a basket full of grace, leftover from God for you. There's always hope. It's limitless. It never ends. The love and the work of God is, it never rests. The supply is never de- depleted. Think about this. His provisions never exhausted. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12 tells us this. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. The life-sustaining food from God is abundant. John 10.10 10 tells us, uh, Jesus tells us this. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you look at your condition and think, it is impossible for me to ever change my lot in life? I mean, as a Christian, I know some Christian brothers and sisters who are mired in some things that they just never seem to overcome, but they think they're defeated. They talk to me as if defeat has happened. I'm only going to go this far in the Lord. I'm only going to understand this much. I'm only ever going to believe this much. I'm only ever going to believe be this faithful. I'm never going to get any better. It's never going to get any better than this. They think that that God has only given them so much grace because even maybe their own choices have exhausted his supply. I've exhausted the goodness of God. He can't be any better to me because I'm so bad. I've been so bad. I've exhausted God's grace by my own choices. Well, if grace was something you could work for, you could say that. But since it is abundant provision of God, you cannot have exhausted God's grace. You cannot have worked enough to earn it or to keep it. The life that you have been given in Christ is by grace, and it is that in abundant supply. See, I would say this, and I thought about this a lot this week. His grace is a barely tapped reservoir. I barely touched it in my own life. I have barely tapped into grace, into receiving it, into understanding it, into being empowered by it, and to living according to it. It is a barely tapped reservoir. But here's the thing. This barely tapped reservoir, even by all of us, has been appointed to you by grace because of Jesus Christ's atoning death for us. But it's only been tapped for those who believe. You've only tapped into it by faith. Do you believe? Have you received this grace to believe? Now you have an abundant resource forever, an inexhaustible resource of grace. Or have you yet to come to Christ? Have you yet to come by his grace? I would say this, and if you have friends who you've preached to or tried to convince that they ought to receive the gospel, they've been resistant for years and years and years, and you're almost at the point where you think about giving up. It is never, ever too late. It's never too late. Grace has not been exhausted for them. It's still there in abundance, in overflowing. It is never too late. And if you think it's too late for you, it is never, ever too late. Today, God and Jesus Christ has abundant grace, and he still does this. Still, to this day, God makes dead men and dead women live. He still does it. He's continuing to do it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, I just want to read it because I think it's a great passage that fits this so well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the great phrase in the Bible, but God, but God rich being rich in mercy Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now get this, this is about the abundance of grace. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Although you and I are limited in our humanity, but God. That's a phrase you can stop at right there. Although we are limited in our humanity, but God. He is abundant in resources. He is abundant in grace. He is abundant in mercy. He is abundant in love. But God, who is rich in mercy, has immeasurable grace because of his great love of sinners, like you and like me. The abundant supply of grace is a gift for those who recognize this. I am limited. I have faced the responsibility. I am limited. He is abundant. I would ask this morning, are you at the limit of trying to work your own righteousness that is pleasing to God? Have you reached your limit of self-righteous works? By grace, may He cause you to surrender that which does not come naturally. May God's abundant grace bring abundant life to you this morning. Place your trust in the abundant life He offered to you in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to think about this this morning as we continue. How will you respond to grace today? In our text, we're going to see the response of the abundant provision of Jesus Christ from the crowd. Let us look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They would say, this is indeed the prophet sent from God, the promised one. He is the one who can overthrow the Romans. This is their thought, right? We need to install him as the king of Israel, and we need to do it now. Do we respond to saving grace sometimes in this same way? If Jesus is king, then he certainly would desire to change all the things that bring me discomfort uh, in this world right now. He would certainly desire me to be rid of all the things that that I suffer in this life right now. Jesus is king. That's what grace is about, right? Is making me comfortable. Grace is about saving you and giving you new life. If Jesus has given us eternal life in his name by grace, Doesn't he desire that the kingdoms that we are building here for ourselves um, would be uh, ran and ordered according to the way we want them? Doesn't he? He certainly desires that our governments would run according to the way we want them. Well, no. Jesus is building a kingdom, right? He's building a kingdom that is not of this world. Did you know this? There will be a day. There will be a day, friends, for those who repent and believe that we will rule and reign together with Jesus. That one day, all of these kingdoms, these uh, suffering, this discomfort, one day that relief will fully come. To get us to that day that will fully come, guess what? He supplies us with grace. This never-ending supply of grace to get us to the day when we will fully realize the relief from our sufferings, the relief from this discomfort. There will be a day when the kingdoms of all the earth will vanish, and Jesus and the people who repent and believe will rule and reign together with him. But in this life, suffering has a purpose, doesn't it? Tyrannical rulers have their purpose. Like Jesus, we ourselves learn obedience through suffering. We learn our dependence upon God's grace through the suffering that we do in this world. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, even tyrants are used to magnify the glory of God, aren't they? Jesus perceives that they want to make Him king. And Jesus here knows this, that He is the king, but He is the king of an eternal kingdom. His rule is not of this world and this system. He's not here to to fix a broken system. He's here to inaugurate a new system, a system of grace, a system of mercy, a system where he is king and God is in control, where God's rule stands. This is the kingdom he's bringing in. But there will be a day. There will be a day. But for now, there's much work to be done. So Jesus is saying this here. There's much work to be done. These who want to force him to be king one day, but right now there's, there's much work to be done. So Jesus breaks away to solitude. The disciples don't go with him. It doesn't say this in this text, but I believe it's likely to pray. Jesus breaks away likely to pray, to connect with the father. So he breaks away to pray. For there's much work to be done. And while we wait, there's much work for you and I to be done while we wait for the consummation of our faith. Through suffering and ungodly leaders we are uh, continue. We are to continue every day the work of kingdom building by proclaiming the gospel and by teaching and helping others to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's the purpose of the church. That is I believe the response to grace. The response to grace is to proclaim the gospel. The response to grace for us is to teach and observe all that Jesus commanded, and to help our brothers and sisters do the same. That's the response to grace. But then, here we are, we're in this mode, and what we ought to be doing is, is disciple-making amongst each other and evangelizing the world. But here you are. I just said you are limited in your humanity. What do you need to do that? Grace. You need grace to continue. And then, guess what? Good news! God still has an unending supply of grace for you to enable you, to empower you, to do that which He calls you to do. And then we respond in more grace. You see, this grace is what we need and what will enable us to persevere to the end, right? It is those who persevere to the end that receive the prize. It is those who persevere to the end that receive the prize. It is those who as they are persevering, understand I am so limited in my ability. If I'm going to make it to the end, surrender, which does not come natural to me. I need to surrender to the fact that I am limited and that God's grace is abundant. I need His grace to take me all the way to the end. And it is by grace that God Himself will Preserve us and take us all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. I realize I'm a little long here, but I'm going to close. I'm going to, I think it's important that you all get this. So I'm I'm going to, I'm going to forge on. Verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, um, got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. With Jesus gone to the mountain in solitude to pray, the disciples head toward Capernaum. They were facing these strong winds and rough seas and... They see Jesus walking in the water coming toward them. Jesus, in our previous passage, he was the uh, giver of the Sabbath, and thus he demonstrated authority over the Sabbath by even continuing to work on the Sabbath. His work on the Sabbath and healing was a demonstration that he has authority over the Sabbath, right? And here, he continued this work there as as the giver of the law, as God in the flesh, the giver of the law. Uh, he is the ruler of the Sabbath law. The disciples are frightened not only by the storm, but aren't they frightened, I believe, by the power and the authority that Jesus has over the created world. Here you are, you see a man walking on the water. It would probably freak you out. This guy has some power. This guy has authority even over Creation. It's one thing for Jesus to claim he has authority over the Sabbath, but there's another for this authority to be on display as authority over all of creation. He can defy the laws of nature. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to walk on water. I don't think it's going to last very long, right? So here he is demonstrating that he has authority as the co-creator, even over the laws of creation. The disciples are deeply frightened by this storm listen to how Jesus responds. This is really important. This is why I wanted to go ahead and finish. It, it, Jesus' response is great. Jesus' response says, It is I. It is I. Think about what that means. The Greek translation is literally this. I am. You've probably heard that before. The definition in the Greek translation to English, is this. When he says, It is I, it means, I am the pre existing one of whom there is no equal. So here's Jesus walking on the water. They're freaked out. They're scared. And he says, It is I, the pre existing one of whom there is no equal. I will tell you this that if you are not in Christ Jesus today, And you are hearing this, this is true. I'm telling you that this is true. This should scare the tar out of you right now. That the Jesus Christ that I proclaim, it is the I Am. Uh, The co-creator of the world upon whom there is no equal. Without repentance and faith in Him, you are going to die in your sins and go to hell and be judged forever. This should scare the tart of you. You should be more frightened than these dudes were that were on the boat in the storm. You should be very, very afraid when somebody says, it is I. When I tell you that it is Jesus, it is in Christ alone that there is salvation because he is the pre-existing one. This should scare the tart out of you. Nature cannot overcome me. I am, Jesus says. Nature cannot overcome me because I am. In Jesus Christ, we overcome our human limitations by grace. But in Christ, by the mercy of God, Jesus, the creator who is not susceptible to created nature, guess what? We are not only limited limited in our humanity by our ability, but we are limited by nature. We are limited by our own human nature because in human terms, we cannot overcome death and we cannot overcome this, our natural inclination to sin. We have a natural inclination to sin against God. That's why when Rich Mullen says, surrender, don't come natural to me. Of course it doesn't. Because you have a natural inclination to sin. You have a natural inclination to serve yourself and not the God who deserves it. You're naturally inclined. But Jesus here, as the co-creator walking on water, He overcomes not only human limitations, but He also overcomes the created nature. He is the overcomer of our nature, of our created sinful nature. Not that God created our sinful nature, but that we were sinful by nature. The disciples were frightened seeing Jesus not succumbing to nature, but ruling over it at the proclamation of Jesus, It is I. It is I. If you are in Christ today, you should at once tremble. As Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in your hearing this morning, God, who is merciful and loving, is equally holy, powerful, full of wrath against sin. He says, it is I, Jesus, whom the Father sent to bring abundant life to you, a sinner. It is I who obediently obeyed the Father in every way that you by nature could not. It is I who will board the vessel of your heart and take you through trials, through storms, through oppression, through death, and I will safely bring you to the shores of heaven. Will you welcome me? Jesus says it is I. Will you welcome me? Will you receive grace today? Will you repent? And believe. Let us take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And Father God, we do thank you for your word this morning. We pray for the power of grace to enable our lives to live according to your mercy, according to your kindness, according to your love, according to your laws and your rules let it reign in our hearts lord we understand that we are limited in our humanity that we are we still have corners of sin in our life we have residual sin in our heart that needs to be eradicated lord but lord help us by grace help us to trust that your supply never ends that you will enable us to do that which you've called us to do We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.